Hello and welcome to Open Source Governance. I'm your host Pendar and you're listening to the fifth episode of this podcast. The central topic of this episode will be trust and governance. I'll be talking briefly about what is a government and why do we need to trust it, what instruments there are for making sure that the government can be trusted, and I'll be pointing out some issues that there are regarding trust and governance, and I'll be referring again to the book of David van Raybroek, Against Elections, who has discussed this issue in his book comprehensively. I will also briefly talk about populism and the need for populism, and what does it have to do with trust and governance. Then I like to discuss how people from different parts of the world with different governing systems trust or mistrust their governments. But before that, I need to apologize for being away for such a long time since I've been taking on some few projects which are very much in line with this project actually. Something that I've been researching and dealing with recently is the world of NFTs and Web3, also known as the Metaverse. In this podcast, I've been trying to first explain the basic terms of governing and different decision-making processes within the body of a government before I can get to uh, talk about the suggestions that the project is trying to put out there. And that is what I'm doing now with this episode. But soon I will start explaining different terms that is needed for understanding what the project is trying to design and do and explain what it has done so far. And part of that would be to explain what open source programming is and what blockchains are, what is metaverse, what is decentralized autonomous organizations and such. So we will be getting a bit technical soon. Not that we weren't technical so far, but uh, we're going to just get more technical. But for now, let's focus on trust and governance. All right. So what is a government? Now, don't worry. I'm not going to go that basic to explain what is a government. But uh, in order to explain trusting the government, we have to kind of get there. A government is basically like a giant company that is running every aspect of our lives and is affecting everything around us. And all of his decisions are affecting everything in our lives almost. There are many things that we are already doing because the government tells us. We just don't see it anymore because we are so used to it. If you take the example of COVID restrictions, you will see that how much power does government have in telling us how to do and what to do and defining our relationship with the world around us. So like I explained in the previous episodes, a government has parts that are elected and they are representing us. And it has parts where people who are working there are either employed by that department or elected to work there by the representatives. In any case, the government is providing a service for its people. It's governing them. It's holding the glue of the society together. It's it's running things and trying to keep the order, take care of the poor and old and children and families, distribute wealth, 
provide jobs, provide health, defend the country, and those kind of stuff. So in terms of what the government is delivering, yes, it's delivering services for us, just like a company that's providing services. The only difference is, if you don't like the quality of the work and the services of a company, you don't buy from them or you don't use their services. In the case of a government, if you don't like the quality, you just have to deal with it. There will be remaining not many options for you if you don't like it. Because there is one giant company that is doing everything. There are no second options. There is one government. So when I'm talking about trusting the government, I'm talking about the confidence that we have in how this government is providing the services that it is required to do. And this is on a very basic level. Other levels would be the transparency within a government or the security within a government or lack of corruption within a government. So in a democratic system, when we are electing representatives and officials, uh, we are kind of putting our trust in them and we are choosing them because we think they are better than the other candidates, or at least we hope so. With the current definition of democracy, this is all that we get to do. Elections and referendums. But what happens on the other side? What does the government think about the trust that it needs? What does the government think about trusting? A governing body in any size, from a government to a society or a company, knows that it needs the trust of its members. Trust and confidence of the members of a society is always considered as the backbone of that governing body. It's one of the most valuable things that a government can hope for. It's something that's always been propagated and echoed and reflected and reported on and televised that the people trust us so we are doing a good job. If you look at the most democratic countries to the harshest dictatorships, the government is always trying to say that people trust us. They hold polls in more democratic countries to show this by percentage, and they use other measurements in less democratic countries. I gave you some examples from North Korea. Right. Now let's talk about what instruments there are for trusting the government. One of the most well-known systems that are out there for checking the government to trust it or not is called checks and balances. As I said in the previous episodes, governments usually have three branches, executive, judicial, and legislative, and together these three run the whole government. These are three different autonomous bodies that form the government together and each one has a certain job but they are designed in a way that they can check on each other to make sure that one part of this body doesn't get too much power that's why they check each other to keep the balance so basically checks and balances is a system that allows each branch of a government to amend or veto acts of another branch to prevent any one branch from exerting too much power. Take the United States as an example. First, the legislative branch makes the laws, but the executive branch gives the veto power to the president. 
allowing the president to keep the legislative branch in check. In addition, the judicial branch, the part of the government that interprets the laws that are put into effect by the legislative branch, can deem certain laws unconstitutional, making them void. So in the worst case scenario, we have a parliament that passes a law that the president doesn't like, so he vetoes it. And then we have a judicial branch of some court, a high court, I assume, that deems the act of the president unconstitutional and it vetoes over that veto. That's a shitstorm of chaos right there, which if I'm not mistaken, we had that or something close to that during the Trump administration. So this is checks and balances inside of the government. And of course, the government creates the rules also for the people. There's all these rules that people have to follow. Otherwise, they have to be punished, you know. And the way that the people hold the government responsible or have their checks and balances is by elections, right? So it is assumed that because people get to choose these representatives, they had their say in how they are governed. In some countries, there are other tools that are not as powerful, but there is something. Like, for example, if you have an issue, you can form a petition online or on the parliament's website. And if there's enough votes for your petition, then the parliament has to discuss that and the government will have to come up with an answer. But other than that, there's not anything more than just protesting and taking to the streets and burning stuff. And yeah, so on paper, the government truly needs the trust of its people because it's the value that it's seeking to prove that it's doing a good job and providing all these services. And people do have the control over how does a government work by voting. And that should be enough. But let's get a little bit crazy here and say that the government doesn't really need the trust of the people and the approval of the people because whatever it does, people will just go by it and nothing will change and they can just push as far as they could. And the people don't really trust the government because they feel like voting is not enough and they are not being represented well enough. You know, just throwing out a crazy scenario here. But before we throw out any more crazy scenarios, let's get a little bit more scientific and look at some numbers and uh, professional opinions. In episode 2, in a minute 29 and 35 seconds, I started uh, to quote from the book of Against Election from David Van Raybroek, in which he talks about trust and democracy, and uh, he gives some numbers from couple of researchers that have been conducted in Europe uh, talking about how everybody seems to want democracy but uh, nobody really believes in it and over time the trust in institutions are declining and the fact that after the world war and the fascism and communism and colonialism and all of that uh, democracy became a very trendy 
kind of way of governing and everybody wanted to have it. And now a lot of countries do have it, but people don't really feel like they have been hurt just because they get to tick a name next to a box every four years. And that's just not enough for them. For a better understanding, I will now insert parts of the quotation. I suggest you listen to the complete quotation, or even better, read the book against elections. There is something strange going on with democracy. Everyone seems to want it, but no one believes in it any longer. Even though international statistics tell us more and more people say they are in favor of it. A few years ago, the World Values Survey, a large-scale international research project, questioned more than 73,000 people in 57 countries, representing almost 85% of the world's population. When asked whether they believe democracy to be a good way of governing a country, no fewer than 91.6% answered in the affirmative. The proportion of the global population that has a positive attitude to the concept of democracy has never been as great as it is today. This degree of enthusiasm is nothing short of spectacular, especially in light of the fact that less than 70 years ago, democracy was in a very bad way. As a result of fascism, communism, and colonialism, when the Second World War ended, there were only 12 fully-fledged democracies. Slowly, the numbers started to rise, and in the 1972, there were 44 free states. By 1993, they numbered 72, and now there are 117 electoral democracies out of the total of 195 countries, 90 of which can actually be defined in practice as a free state. Never before in history have there been so many democracies, never before so many supporters of this form of government. Yet, enthusiasm is declining. That same World Values Survey showed that worldwide over the past 10 years, there has been a considerable increase in the calls for a strong leader who does not have to bother with parliaments and elections. And a trust in parliaments, governments, and political parties has reached a historical low. It would appear that people like the idea of democracy, but not the reality of it, or at any rate, not the current reality. I just want to add in between brackets that this book was released in 2013 and the election of Donald Trump hasn't happened yet. But Van Raybroek, uh, he really expects a rise of popularism, which is interesting because it really happens later in Europe, in the United States and in other parts of the world. So then he explains the idea of trust within the government. And he tries to dig in this notion of trust a little bit. And later he goes on to say that this trust is mutual, incidentally. In 2011, Dutch researcher Peter Kane presented some interesting figures on how politicians in The Hague look at Dutch society. A full 87% of the country's governing elite sees itself as innovative, freedom-loving and internationally oriented. But 89% think the Dutch are generally traditional, nationalistic, and conservative. So politicians assume that, on the whole, citizens adhere to other, in their view, lesser values than they do, and there is no reason to believe that the picture is different elsewhere in Europe. 
However, getting back to the citizen, the reason often given for this increase in distrust is the apathy, which results from the individualization and consumerism. This is said to dull citizens' critical engagement to such an extent that their faith in democracy has subsided into half-heartedness. At best, they now bob about in listless indifference and change channels the moment politics is mentioned. Having given up, we are informed on politics. That, however, is not entirely in accordance with the facts. As while it might be true that a substantial proportion of people have little interest in politics, that has always been the case. There has been no recent decline. In fact, research shows that concern about political issues is greater than it used to be, and people discuss such issues with friends, family, and colleagues more than they did in the past. This interest in politics is not a reason to feel reassured. However, as an era in which interest in politics grows, while faith in politics declines, always has something explosive about it. After all, it means there is a growing gulf between what citizens think about what they see politicians doing, between what they regard as vital and what, in their view, the state is neglecting, resulting in a build-up of frustration. What does it mean for the stability of a country if more and more people varily keep track of the doings of an authority which they increasingly distrust? How much derision can a system endure? And is it still merely derision, now that everyone can express and share their deeply felt opinions online? We live in a world quite opposite to that of the 1960s. Then a simple farmer and his wife could be completely apathetic about politics and yet have complete faith in democracy. Sociological research confirms such confidence existed, a faith that characterized large parts of Western Europe. Then there was apathy and trust, while now there is passion and distrust. These are turbulent times. Van Raybroek also explains something else that is called democratic fatigue syndrome, which is uh, a bit longer to explain in this uh, podcast episode. But if one would want to list the items within this syndrome, it would be referendum fever, low water turnout, political paralysis, and rise of anti-establishment or the so-called populist parties. There's a video link in the description in which he explains better what this means, the term democratic fatigue syndrome and more. And I advise you to have a look at this YouTube video. If it wasn't clear so far, what I'm trying to suggest with this episode is that trust is an issue when it comes to governing. This is especially more relevant when we are talking about the times that we are in now. And in order to understand that, we should take a closer look and see what the reason for this is. One of the first things that pops in your head when you talk about distrust in government is the notion of populism. But what exactly is populism? 
or better said, modern populism. You see, most democratic nations have based their systems on liberal democracy. Where did liberal democracy come from? After the end of the World War, countries tried to move away from totalitarianism ideologies that proved to be very dangerous. And when we are talking about liberal democracy, by liberal it doesn't mean a political party, liberal in its essential sense. Liberal democracy is basically formed on three pillars or three essential components. First one is that it accepts that the society is full of conflicts and cross-cutting divisions. So basically it measures for all the possible different conflicts of opinions and it has a system that creates the room for all different ideas. And that's why you see there's a lot of respect for freedom of speech, freedom of religion and these sort of things. The second one is that in liberal democracy, many divisions seek common ground. So it means that uh, different opinions and different divisions and interests, they all have something in common. This is often explained with economic growth or with uh, essential things like uh, social welfare or uh, healthcare. Uh, so all these different divisions agree on, they, or they can agree under this system that some things are essential and that's what creates the common ground for all these different divisions. And the third one is that liberal democracy relies on the rule of law and protection of the minority rights. Well, all governments in the past should have also been relying on the rule of law. But with the examples of liberal democracy, we are more referring to a strong and independent judicial branch, which is not as easily affected by a certain individual or a certain party or a monarch or a political party or a, or a belief or a religion. And by protection of the minority rights, it again is trying to create an equal grounds for all different individuals to have equal chance. Hence the free market and freedom of economic activity for everybody or having people the equal right to have a say in elections or things like that, which are nice and beautiful on paper, but usually not practiced correctly. So this political model, liberal democracy, was adopted after the war by most Western nations and it kind of brought a stability into most of these countries and it solved a lot of problems, but not quite all of the problems. Rather, they created new problems, one could say. You see, because of its nature and how it encourages a free market, liberal democracy constantly establishes institutions, enables economy, and eventually is perfect for capitalism and consumerism. This kind of creates a society that is mostly looking for their own interest and looking for their own benefit and 
People don't necessarily think about others rather than their inner circle. As long as there's food on the table and there's no problem. Yeah, it kind of brings in this individualistic, self-interested um, behavior. And under these circumstances, a problem that could occur is that there will become an increasingly growing wealth gap within the society, which hurt underserved communities who distrust the wealthy and the political leaders. And the reason for that uh, is a term that is often used by populist leaders is establishment. The establishment is exactly this gap between the political leaders and the society. By establishment, we are talking about these three essential needs for liberal democracy that works tirelessly in empowering institutions, or better said, establishing the institutions. That is why it's called the establishment. So the wealth gap and the power games within the establishment can be a hotbed for political corruption. One example could be lobbying, which could be an episode by itself, but for now, lobbying is when political parties are affected by people outside of that representative system, by, for example, receiving bribes or being promised a certain position or a deal or something of that kind, which has nothing to do with the interest of that party and what that party is or that representative is promising to people who vote for them. But it's more about sustainability for that individual or for that group of people within that party. So again, a position of self-interest. And that could be a great example for political corruption. Political corruption often goes unnoticed until it's not anymore. And that's where you have the free press, which is another essential pillar from the liberal democracy to have a free press as you have independent judicial system or free market, you also have a free press. There are people who are whistleblowers and they blow the whistle over corruption by different leaders. And when people see that, this already flickering flame of trust is then completely blown away and there is no more trust anymore. And when people have no trust anymore in their political leaders, they start to look elsewhere for different possible leaders and people who can save them from the situation. They often look for people who challenge the establishment and don't play by the rules and, uh, and they are charismatic or powerful enough to kind of have their own say. And most importantly, leaders who promise to put people first. And if the majority feels unheard and underrepresented, they can use the existing democratic systems to change the leaders. This is where assertive modern populists can subvert democracy. These modern populists identify themselves as embodiment of the will of the people and place them above institutions which are governed by a ruling minority. Populists argue that politics is no longer about seeking compromises and consensus through democratic institutions. Instead, the populist seeks to overturn the broken system. 
The populace dismisses any establishment that disagrees with the common will, which is very subjective, by the way, depending on who do you call the people. Populist leaders are usually charismatic individuals who keep making promises to their supporters while painting their opponents as an unfixable, corrupt traitor who undermines the interests of the country. And populist leaders usually invest in the emotions of the people rather than creating a clear plan of what they want to do. So you can see that populist uh, leaders often target people who are already frustrated. They have no faith in the system. They are seeking a new kind of way of doing things. And, and they can easily say what these people want and they just reflect that louder and more courageously uh, by creating more noise and using the media in their interest. They often make controversial comments and, and they have no fear of making extreme statements. Remember, this could be a populist of left or right or any other kind. A populist leader can sometimes bring about good change, but sometimes can turn the whole thing into a shit job. It really depends on who the populist is targeting to influence and win their votes, because remember, it's all about winning those votes and using the existing democratic tools that there are, which is votes and representation. For example, let's imagine that there is economic decline and there are fewer jobs than it used to be. And at the same time, there's a war going on somewhere in the world and the establishment is promoting a policy of taking in more refugees. And these refugees need placement and jobs. A populist leader could easily come and say, hey, look, these immigrants are taking our jobs. They took our jobs. Well, yeah, they're down. They took they're our jobs. In. They did. Well, they took our jobs. They took your jobs. They took your jobs, they too. Job. They took our jobs. They, they took your jobs. They took your jobs. your jobs. And you're not having a job because somebody else is taking that position. And somebody who is affected by this lack of job can easily relate to that and they will think that, oh, he's right, we should fight this policy of taking more refugees. And it's all the establishment's fault. And then you have xenophobia, which basically means the fear of the foreigner or outsider. If you remember Trump talking, it was all that he was saying. If you see leaders like Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, that's all that he's saying, that He's against Muslims and immigration, and he wants out of the EU uh, because he's anti-establishment and he has gained support among people who think this way. And then they gain a momentum and there is the next election and they win some votes. And yeah, you get the picture, huh?
but when we are talking about individual interests and what people see or deem important for the next time that they are voting, you can really think about different behaviors from different people from around the world. An example that I closely encountered is COVID restrictions here in the Netherlands. So what happened during the Corona crisis uh, was that I was observing that as soon as the government tells that you have to wear masks or uh, be mindful about social distancing and not to go to work or basically every other week that there was a new restriction announced or um, removed, most of the people would really follow these restrictions and the guidelines from the government. You could see that from the moment that in one evening the Prime Minister would say from tomorrow you have to wear masks, people would immediately from next day start wearing masks. Same people who would not wear a mask only 12 hours before. You can imagine that the coronavirus didn't say that oh I'm gonna uh, hit tomorrow so I'm gonna prepare myself and the Prime Minister saw that and said oh I'm gonna counter you so I'm gonna announce that to people and from tomorrow people were wearing masks and Corona was like oh damn it now I cannot make anybody sick you know so this is something that's been going on for a while and it, a lot of people were becoming sick but uh, why wouldn't people wear masks before? Couldn't they say that this is something dangerous? Did somebody else had to um, suggest that? I mean, sometimes it was not even a restriction. It was a suggestion or an advice by the government that you... It would be nicer if you would wear masks and tomorrow everybody's wearing masks. But a day before you wouldn't see as many people as the next day, you know? or to remove it, like uh, to remove the restrictions. The day after the restrictions are removed, you can see a heavy number of people not wearing masks suddenly, just because the government said. Another example is uh, the tolerance of people. Uh, a project that I've done with two of my colleagues, Angeliki Marina Diakrosi and Alice Strete, which is called the rumor camp in which we kind of put in the test the tolerance of people from Groningen in the Netherlands. Um, it's famous that people in Groningen are very uh, leftist and tolerant and they are kind of liberal and we wanted to put that into test. So we started a rumor camp in the city as an urban intervention art project at the same time as the municipal election was going on. And we hired uh, two actors who would interview people and ask them questions about election and swoop in a question that was kind of a rumor. And the rumor was that, hey, did you hear that there was going to be a refugee camp built in the city? And this was at the same time that there was a huge housing crisis in the city of Groningen because they have a university and they accept a lot of students, but there's no housing for them. And we were expecting to see a lot of negative reactions to 
you know, we wanted to test if people are really as open as they say they are. So the reaction of like 99% of the people were, oh, let them come. They're welcome. They are more than welcome to come to our city and we will, you know, host them the best as we can. Uh, but the next question was that, but what about the housing? Have you thought about how to provide housing? And everybody would say, oh, nice question. I have not thought about that. And we kind of concluded that people are kind of a bit naive about these practical things. And they think that the government will take care of it. The city council knows better than I do. So they, they don't really bother to think about the details. So what I'm trying to say is that in liberal democrat countries, people are often trusting how the system works. This is the general public. They, they trust in the functionality of the government. Or at least they don't bother thinking about how things are done and organized. At the same time, if you go to a country like Iran with the same crisis, huh? the, the, the COVID crisis, you see that people are wearing masks everywhere and they refer to their own judgment when it comes to personal safety because maybe the government isn't doing the best possible way in controlling the situation, you know, like uh, this could be other countries in the, well, what is called the Middle East, um, that you have to kind of look after yourself because of the way that you have been brought up you kind of learn to take care of yourself and to be more autonomous and more self-sufficient, right? Or sometimes more resourceful. And you don't necessarily put your life in the hand of the government by taking your mask off or putting it on just because the prime minister comes and says it so, you know? Let's just say that the threshold of feeling safe is very different, but it doesn't mean that uh, people in the West or people in uh, liberal democracies are more trustful to their government. They still have their own doubts, right? Uh, you can see that in lack of engagement with elections, for example. There is an increasing number of uh, lack of participation in elections. And again, with the, with the COVID restrictions, I have seen... Uh, big demonstrations here in the Netherlands, for example, or in the US or everywhere else, I would say, uh, about COVID restrictions, because people thought that their freedom is restricted, their individual freedom of movement is restricted, they cannot go to vacations as they want to, they cannot go to a bar for a drink, or they cannot go shopping, you know, the things that you would do usually to just bide your time or spend your money or just be what you want to be and when you want to be. I remember that a protest broke out here in Rotterdam as soon as the prime minister announced that the bars should close, right? So I haven't seen a protest about countries being invaded, about... Uh, really controversial, you know, examples of minority rights not being uh, held. 
But I've seen protests about a bar, uh, bars being closed at 10 p.m. So you can see how individualistic and kind of uh, capitalistic ways of living affects how we think what is important for us and how we decide that something needs to be acted upon because it's affecting me and my ego and my my centered you know self that i cannot have a beer i should be you know against this it's okay if people in gaza are dying every day or my country is not taking refugees and they just vanish in the ocean but everybody should know that i'm so angry that i cannot have a beer with the boys at the bar after work and as a modern populist when you see that you can easily make an agenda for yourself that you can use this in your next speech or in your next um, address or you can use this in election or you can uh, form your rhetoric around this issue and easily win, right? So this can totally affect the trust of the people in the establishment, something as easily as this. But like the quotation from Van Raybrook's book, there's much more to that with the issue of trust. I just wanted to make a comparison between what can be important, like the matter of existing or like basic human rights or um, something as easy as COVID restrictions. So in countries with non-liberal democracy, um, it can often be about uh, mistrust in the government because of extreme corruption or or because of more basic things such as human rights or suppression or bad government when it comes to economy or holding the glue of the society basically together with uh, healthcare or with the services basically uh, whereas in more liberal democracies all these services are in place but the mistrust could be about the difference of opinion or not seeing yourself being heard or relating to something that a populist leader says just because you feel yourself affected by what that leader has to say. But in both cases, what we have here is that the trust is lost. And when it comes to democracy, it again comes down to one tool and one tool only, and that is representation. Representative system, voting once in a while, then pissing off to live your life for four more years. And people simply think that this is not enough. You can be a gun lover in Texas, a Yellow Pages writer in Paris, a farmer in Nigeria, an artist in Iran, an economist in New York or a cook in New Delhi, but you could mistrust the government just as much as the other guy. It wouldn't matter who you are and how you are practicing your democratic rights. It all comes down to the fact that 
democracy is limited and it's overused and the way that we are organizing ourselves is kind of worn out and the need for a new way of organizing is completely being felt and the tools for overcoming that are here. We just need to see them and be creative and use them. And that's what we're going to think about in the coming episodes. So please stay with us and tune in for next episodes, which are going to be released faster than this last one, which took a few months. And feel free to be part of this with uh, sending messages or introducing ideas, or if you want to talk over the podcast, if you have something to say, you can reach out. It's completely open and it's very encouraged to do so. You can find us on opensourcegovernance.com and with the social handle Project OSG on Instagram, Twitter, and everywhere else. Write to us to info at opensourcegovernance.com. Just share your thoughts. Also, any contribution is welcome. On the website, you can find a donation button. Again, I want to thank Centrum for Building the Kunst Rotterdam for their um, contribution for the last episodes. Also, you're more than welcome to create a user on our website and use the forum to discuss different things. And I want to sign off by uh, talking about something that happened in between the two parts that I recorded for this episode, and that's the invasion of Ukraine. I'm sure many people are affected or as sad as I am about this, and, and you have every right to be. It's very sad to see another war breaking out and it's never a good news to see people moving away from their home and seeking refuge in other countries and blood being shed. I want to show my support for people of Ukraine who are going through this terrible situation and losing their family members and losing their houses and works and being invaded by the neighboring country. But also I want to share my support for people of Russia who are against this and they are suffering the extreme effect of the sanctions uh, of, on their country. Believe me, I know what the sanctions are and how terrible they are for people who are on one side uh, defying their country's leaders, but at the same time they are also being suppressed by the rest of the world. So it's terrible. Also, I want to mention something that I've observed during the last few days, how I've seen double standards being held by different media platforms in reflecting how people from different countries have different value. Let's just uh, think about that for a minute. And there are conflicts and wars everywhere, but uh, we somehow seem to value more people of a certain race than the other one. And that's very, very sad to see. 
I've heard comments by certain media channels and world leaders that how they're not used to see people from Europe being misplaced and taking refuge. And this is something that belongs to people from the Middle East and such. There are people or people everywhere. You can't say because somebody has blue eyes or blonde hair, their life is more valuable than somebody who's from Afghanistan, you know? So just wanted to mention that and maybe chew on that for a minute. Maybe follow the hashtag uncivilized on Twitter and Instagram and you will see for yourself what I'm talking about. And with that, I'm signing off and I wish you all happier days until the next episode with more good news. Till next time. Bye.